Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Al Lunsford. Joe Passoff, my co-host. We're delighted to be joined all the way from Barbados today by Ian Woosnam. Woozy, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. How's your no your time no there in the Caribbean? Absolutely wonderful. Uh, just going to go and have a game, a game of golf this afternoon. So, yeah, it's beautiful sunshine, nice bit of breeze. Uh, couldn't be better. Why Barbados? You seem to be fond of that place. Well, uh, I first started coming here in 1983. And uh, then in sort of like 1994 or something, I decided to buy a house. And uh, we developed a house, um, built a house. And uh, I've been coming here for the last 40 years. It's uh, it's a place where we can get away from our winters in uh in in the uk and we can guarantee the weather the weather in barbados and that's uh, and it's a lot of british people come here so we got a lot of friends as well now i understand you spend a lot of time at apes hill uh, I, I don't i'm not familiar with how much other golf is on the island but apes hill is supposed to be world class of course ron kirby who did old head uh did the design there and and redesigned before uh sadly he passed it's a little bit different, right? It's it's set about a thousand feet above sea level, so high up, really nice vistas. What can you tell us about that place? Well, Barbados basically has a few golf courses. One Sandy Lane, Westmoreland, and Bar and uh, Ape Sail Golf Club is you know is the highest point uh, pretty well in Barbados. So uh, yes, uh, it, the course has been there for a number of years, maybe getting close to twenty years, and uh, uh, then. A new consortium came in and, and 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 bought it, and Ron Kirby came in, redesigned it, and uh, changed a few holes here, there, and everywhere. But Apesville is one of the beautifulest uh, scenery that you get in the world. So once you get up to sort of the twelfth or thirteenth, fourteenth, you're looking over the Caribbean side of the island and the sea, and you and when you get and you're also looking over the the eastern side was the Atlantic Sea, and it's a uh, you know it's a great experience for anybody who's coming to Barbados to to have that experience of seeing that view and playing up there. And that, so, as I say, it's a little higher than some of the other golf courses, and uh, it's a nice breezy breezy course, and uh, it keeps you cool, and it's a, a great experience. It, you know, the clubhouse has been done. We've got an, uh, a little a nine old course called Baby Apes now, and it's uh it's turned into an, an excellent, fantastic facility. Very good. Joe, I know you're a big fan of old head. Have you been to Apes Hill or, or Barbados even? You know, in all my travels, I actually have not had a chance to go to Barbados, but I certainly love the idea of playing a quick round of golf on a course called Baby Apes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, baby apes is just a par five, a par three, and what they've done, you know, obviously this it's they've uh, designed nine holes of dips, nine different little holes around the world, and they've made that a little walking course. So you just grab a little bag and and walk around it. You'd only need so many golf clubs, and uh, yeah, that's it, it's 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 a nice, and it's all around the clubhouse, pretty on the practice ground, and you know you can lazily go around there and play, and then come in and have a nice little cocktail. So it it is nice. The entire setup sounds magnificent when you get a little uh, elevation involved, meeting Apes Hill, 
and uh, you know, championship course, short course, and obviously it's a very nice lifestyle if you're waking up uh, enjoying, you know, perhaps a beverage or two in the Caribbean. And uh, you know, good for you. Forty years of that uh, has has probably been fantastic. Yeah, it has. You know, it's uh, you know, and then lately, you know, I've been getting involved with with Apesil and become an ambassador, and you know, trying to do uh, interviews like that to get it more recognized because you know it's a special place to first of all to come to Barbados, but then we we got these golf courses here where people don't know about as well. You know, uh, I'll I'll say this to Ian. Um, do you is Apes Hill a purely residential community, or is there a resort component to it as well? It's resort. Uh, it's all resort. It's uh, you know, I'm, I don't know how many houses. I think it's, I think there could be in the the region of three hundred houses to be to be built or being built and and be a totally you know it's a big property. And I do think. Uh, Oh, eventually to see in the future and that's quite a long time where they it could be built another it could be another 18 old built as well so you know and that's that's way in the future i would say sure plenty already there but most likely plenty to come too that's exciting yeah it's fantastic is there anywhere in the world you particularly like traveling other than barbados well, it, you know, we've been coming here for 40 years. There's something that keeps us here. But, you know, as you know, it, it, it's I've pretty well traveled all the world. You know, you got you, it's hard to beat Maui, you know, Hawaii. You come, you you can understand, you know, where you go. Where, where are you guys? Where are you based at? Oh, North Carolina for me and oh, yeah. um, Joe's. I'm, yeah, I'm in Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. You So. In Phoenix, it's easier to go to the Caribbean, uh, to Maui, and if you're at this end, it's easier to come down to to Barbados, you know. But you know they're very similar, and you know you're you're in the ocean, you're surrounded by the ocean. There's nothing like it. I needed a good excuse to get to Barbados. <laughs> oh yeah, if you come on down and maybe have a game of golf for you, maybe. Oh, that you. sounds like an invitation. If you buy me a cocktail. Uh, yeah, I guarantee it. Yeah, I'll I'll buy you two. How about that? Right. Okay, that's fair enough. The opportunity to to come and play with a former world number one and winner of the nineteen ninety one Masters. I was born in September nineteen ninety, so you would have been the first Masters winner these eyes have ever seen. What do you remember from that week? And can you refresh my memory? Because I don't think I remember much. I'd had a fantastic year, nineteen eighty seven. I'd won like eight tournaments around the world. And fortunately, I didn't get into the Masters 1987, but I got in 88. So I think 91 was my first year. And I was having another fantastic year. I'd won a couple of tournaments in Europe. And then I played in New Orleans a couple of weeks before I won there. So I was on a high. And I came into the Masters. And on the Monday morning, I, I, I became world number one which was incredible, a, a dream come true. And to be standing on the first tee is, you know, being the world number one, I think that gave me a really big boost for that week. And, you know, I felt if I was ever going to win a, a major tournament, it was always going to be Augusta for some reason. You know, I felt that uh, it suited my game, a nice big high draw. I was pretty good in my arms. If anything, I didn't, I wasn't the greatest putter in the world, but I felt at Augusta, if I could put the ball in the right positions on the greens, that was a benefit, and that's what I did. Uh, 
first round, I shot 72, and I changed my putter then to a tad more. Uh, and uh, I, I experimented with it for three hours on a Thursday evening, and I decided to go with it. Uh, I was more confident from three foot, and I think that was my winning club that week. My driver and my putting was incredible. So, uh, you know, I'd have to say thanks to Tad Moore, who was who was designer of that putter, and uh, part of him is, and we've been big friends since, and it's a big part of that winning that put on the 18th green was with his putter was incredible. So you mentioned getting a lot of confidence from being the the number one player in the world, and uh, you went on for almost a year to to hold that number one ranking. After <clears throat> that week, I mean, you obviously have to be in an all time high from a confidence standpoint. But what other feelings of being number one are there? Is it is it pure confidence for you? Is there any pressure involved, or is it all just kind of pride at being at the top of your sport? I think people don't really understand what it's like being sort of winning a major or winning majors, being the best at your sport. The demand from people, media, the public, uh, it was a bit of a shock for me. It was, an, you know, I went to another level. I got to, and I'll, I'll be honest, and I didn't really enjoy it. And I felt that, you know, I wasn't. I, and I just I think that uh, was a big play on my game where I didn't we went down all my goals are gone I'd won a major you know maybe my goal should have been to win 10 majors I didn't put that I just want I only had one to win one major and uh, yeah it's it's it, life is a much more difficult place and harder when you've won a major and become world number one there's a lot more demands on you on your life your last Masters was in 2019, correct? Yeah, I can't remember. I know you were very emotional uh, coming up 18, and that's a, a memory. I mean, there was another memory. A guy named Tiger Woods made a great comeback to uh, to win that Masters. But um, you were very emotional coming up 18. When you think about playing in the Masters, uh, having a career where you were number one and won so many tournaments, uh, on the European tour and elsewhere. Uh, how do you look back at your master's career and all that you accomplished as a golfer? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you played about, eventually getting the master's. You know, I, I didn't have that many good results there, but, you know, obviously won there. But I think more, again, I didn't really put good enough to win again. But I, I've had a lot of times where I played good enough, and I think that's what I love playing at the Masters is that, you know, it's it's not really about, well, obviously you want to win, but it's just the experience of being in the tournament and, you know, just being part of that history of that tournament. I think that's why I was so emotional, and I was not going to have that again. Uh, although, you, you know, I go on a Sunday and I take a friend and I play and, it's just not the same when I play in the par three. And when, you, when you're when basically saying goodbye to something that you love so much and be, you know, it's, and you're not going to have that, you know, even if you're, you know, you're finishing 50th, you, you're just, you're losing that, just feel like you're losing some of that competitive edge from you. You're giving it away. And uh, that was a sad thing. What was the feeling like when, you had won the Masters. Now, all that came with it, but one of the things that came with it was 
the Masters dinner, the Champions dinner the next year, and you were asked to pick a menu, and now you're sitting with all of these Masters champions. What was that like for you? Well, I, I think very emotional, very nervous, because you're sitting these these greats and uh, basically, you know, ordering the food. I ordered Welsh lamb and uh, a typical Welsh dinner and some Welsh wines. And, yeah, that was not a problem. But I think getting up there and accepting your medal from, you know, the... Uh, it was a Byron Nelson at the time, and and then I'm to speak in front of these greats. It's something that uh, it's very emotional. Like, and and when I'm at, and when I'm at the dinner on every on a Tuesday night, and you look at the guy standing there, who's obviously a new time, first time win, if he hasn't won before, and you can see. You can see his eyeballs going around, thinking, "What's he going to say? Look at these guys here. What are I going to say to these great golfers? What can I say to them which is different to what they've said before?" And and I think, what, well, yeah. And, but you, as players, we understand what's going on. It's basically, like, get on with it. Let's get our dinner down. Let's and have a couple of drinks and let's get home. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, now it's it, it's it, it it's nice. It's nice growing older, but, you know, you, time's going past, isn't it? Boy, for sure. Al, what else would you like to know from me and while we've got him? Well, one of the things that you occupy your time with these days uh, is running the golf design business, raw golf design with DJ Russell, uh, another former player. Yeah. Uh, how did you get involved in that? What's what's your interest in golf course design and, and what's your philosophy? What do you What do you like to do in building a golf course? Building a golf course, for my philosophy, is it's for everyone. And everybody should have a, an opportunity to be able to get it on a green. You know, not you can imagine you're standing there and you've got to hit it over this water and there's no other way of getting all of it. For a lot of people, you just have to pick it up and walk around the water. But, you know, you, it, it's like, let's say, you can only carry it so far and you can but you can run it. You could sort of run it into greens. And I, I, that's my philosophy. A golf course is not just built for professional golfers. Uh, it's built for 99% of or 99% of people of, of, of all standards. And that's why I love to see that different styles of golf where you run off the greens, you can put it, you can pitch it, you can run it. And, you know, a bit Scottish, but not every piece of land. Is that like like that? So you have to have a little bit more imagination wherever you're building a golf course as well. So you know, it's I just like to have the opportunity to. It doesn't matter if you're five years of age or you're ninety five years of age. You still got the opportunity to to play golf. You know, I've got a few years on Al. So the first big tournament that I covered from a media perspective. Was it a golf course that looked like a Lynx, but didn't always play like a Lynx? That was the 1991 Ryder Cup at Kiowa Island's Ocean Course. What do you remember about that week, one of the most memorable in Ryder Cup history? Well, incredible. As you know, though, is that if you missed the fairway, you went in the sand. And especially with the amount of crowd around, it was all sort of chewed up and everything. But... Yeah, exactly. That was it's sort of golf course that 
it was very demanding. You know, you just had to be precise. And uh, that's what Pete Dye did. It was incredible design work. But as, as we know, over the years, he softened it up around the greens. There's more grass around it. So you were either sort of on the sort of putting surface or just round it, or you were in the sand. And and it was like it was like a, a golf course in the middle of a desert, wasn't it? So it was... Mm. It was a, a new experience for everybody a little bit, so we were all struggling a little bit. But what a finish. I mean, at, I remember Seve saying that no man should ever have to face that kind of pressure. What do you remember as a team member looking on as all this was unfolding? Well, you know, coming down the last row, Irwin and, and Langer, Irwin had gone left, and you know, a lot of people were saying, you know, that ball shouldn't have finished where it did, but it is what it is, and then, but unfortunately for Bernie, where his second shot finished, it was just off the right hand side of the green, and of course now he's got a, a sprinkler in the way, and he couldn't get a drop, so he just tried to, I think, chipped it or around it or something, and it went about six foot past or something or seven foot yep. past, and then you you roar all on the side, and it ends it ends up coming down to Bernard to all this putt, and. You know, unfortunately for him, a bit different in these days. There was a big pitch mark, yeah. spike. Sorry, big spike mark, and uh, it was right on his line. You know, this is Bernard. You know, he he decided he tried to go around it, and it you know, obviously just caught the caught the lip and missed, and it was that was it was all over. But unfortunate. But uh, to for anybody to be in that sir, so for anybody, even if it was ill or burnt. Or Bernard, it, you know, it was a hell of an experience to be. You know, that's what Ryder, that, that's what Ryder Cups are all about, that tension. Nick, how many times has it been like that? It's been fantastic uh, over the last 30, 40 years, the Ryder Cup. It's, you know, it's, uh, you know, I started in 1987. That was my, uh, when did I fit? My first one. I'm a 90, I can't remember. <laughs> uh, not 87, eight. 83 was my first one. There you go. That's 40 years ago. So, yeah, from since then, it's been so, so close and so exciting. Now the American guys are, you know, the, everybody wants to be on that Ryder Cup team. And it's, you know, if you're not on it, it's like you, you, you're not part of golf in history anymore. And uh, that's what's so exciting about it. Ian, I've played about a dozen different courses in Wales. Yeah. And uh, some of the big ones, Celtic Manor and Royal Porth Call, uh, and some of the smaller ones. But I've been lucky in my travels to do that. If you had to recommend for our our traveling golfers who follow us at links, a true hidden gem, one that you can't miss if you're going to go to Wales, what course would that be? I mean, you, did you play Aberdubby? I did, yes. Bernard Darwin's favorite yeah. favorite place. Uh, and then uh, Royal St. David's next to it. You tell us about Aberdovey and a little bit about Royal David's and all. Well, they're right mid Wales, really. And where from where I used to live, it was about an hour and a half drive. I used to go inland. So I used to come out to these two courses when I where I used to live in, in Shropshire, Oswestry. Street. So in the winter, we would drive out there because it wouldn't be frosty or, or frozen. It would be cold, but we could still play. So I spent a lot of time playing on these golf courses. And there are some hidden gems out there. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, 
you know, I don't know if it's the whales itself. It doesn't advertise enough about these places. You know, it's like, as you say, you could go down a Celtic Manor, although it's an in, 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 inland golf course, but you've got Porthcole, but you've got Swansea, and you've got some great golf courses all the way up going up the west coast of Wales, and especially them two, which is mid-Wales, and then you get into North Wales, Flandudno, there's a Conway Golf Club. There's loads up there to play it, and you know it's you know it's it, it, if people are traveling and they've been to Ireland, they've been to Scotland, uh, and been to England, maybe it's time to come up to Wales and play some golf as well. Yeah, Harlech, uh, Royal St David's with yeah with a castle uh, right there. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know it's been always been one. I can remember when I used to play there when I you know. 12 years of age and one time before sprinklers where before you know automatic sprinklers sure. there used to be just big holes at the back of the go back of the greens so they would come with a truck without a pump on it and suck it out and pump it because it's all like pt water hmm. and they flood the greens that's what they used to do once a day flood them and before auto automatic sprinklers never the greens were absolutely pure they were like billiard tables you know they were they were the best greens, most probably in the country, most probably at one time. How about that? I'm sure yeah. that, PD, that PD water smells delightful, I'm, I'm quite sure. <laughs> well, it's up in Scotland, they use it for drinking, making whiskey out of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one for me. The story goes, when you were on in your early days on the European tour, you rode around in a camper van eating baked beans. So I just uh -huh. wonder if you, if you still... Enjoy your baked beans or what your delicacies are these days. Yeah, I'll tell you the truth. Baked beans and some eggs and bacon and toast. And yeah, you can't really beat that. But yeah, at one time traveling around, you know, I was talking about this earlier is that, you know, I started in 19, 1978, got no money, but you could travel from each country. Like, let's say it started in Portugal. Then he would go to Spain, then we go to Italy, then we go to France, and then you you work your way back to the UK. That's how the European tour went them days. And so you could drive to them. And I would park on the practice ground, use the facilities at the golf club, and I would practice and practice and practice. And I, I, in a way, I guess I forget how much I practiced when I was young because I spent so much time, which didn't really have anything to do. And so I was on the range a lot and... Uh, it's it's it was it was a fantastic experience for any young man. There was a few of us did it, you know, who had the same sort of thing. We travel from week to week doing that, so we were we were like a little a trucking trucking place going from week because it was that we had to pre qualify as well. It was called, you know, you can remember that song called We Ate Mondays, and it was like that. You have to qualify on a Monday to try and get in the tournament, and if you didn't get in, you drove off to the next tournament and practice and played and. It was an incredible experience for a young man, but these days they're all different. They're all, you know, they fly from here to there and you go to college, they come out with great big contracts and everything. But, you know, in them days, you, it, was, it was a great experience and hell of a way to learn how to play golf. Sounds pretty fun to me. Uh, when you had in, no money. In a way. In a way. <laughs> now I can look back, it was fun, but at the time it wasn't fun. You know, I can remember the time my dad said to me, you know, treat it as an apprenticeship. You know, this might take you five years or so, and what an apprenticeship usually does. 
So, you know, very well, 1982, I was struggling. I didn't know if I was going to be any good. I, I thought I'd have to give up the game and go for the professional golf, be a professional at clubhouse and uh, club at a golf club. But then eventually, you know, I remember pre-qualifying for the Open at St. George's and I'm leading in the qualifying. I shot, I shot 60, 67 in the first round and then the second round, I basically stood on the on the 18th tee, 80 yards in front of me, out of bounds, and I just picked my clubs up and walked in and drove all the way home, which took me about 10 hours in this van, and uh, said, oh, well, that's it, I'm going to give up golf. A couple of weeks later, my dad said, come on, you know, everybody goes through bad times, and two, you know, a few weeks later, I sort of, sort of won a tournament, and that, that changed my life. Well, kudos to dad then i'll have to keep yeah, in my back yeah, pocket they believe in you <laughs> yes sir all right ian we appreciate your time where it's a bit chillier <laughs> right now in north carolina than it is the caribbean i'm sure but whereabouts in north carolina greensboro all right okay uh greensboro didn't sandy win in greensboro he did oh, yeah. yeah he sure did long-standing <laughs> tournament here I guess it used to be GGO, Greater Greensboro Open, and it's had more names. It's the Wyndham now. I think he, I think he won in '88, I think, or something like that. I remember him winning. Yeah, exactly. And uh, ten years before, Seve won it. Yeah, uh, but his fir first American win. I think Faldo's won there as well. I mean, seems like. Uh... <laughs> And okay. Sam Snead won there eight times. That's what I know about it. Well, yeah, all great players win there, I guess. That's... Yeah, I, I used to have a cup that had all the winners' names on it. Yeah. Sam now, Snead, like, over Now, they used to tell some stories at the dinner. Sam, oh. <laughs> he was he was a naughty boy. <laughs> First time I met him was in Kenya. Can you believe it? Oh. Sam, yeah, he came and played the Kenyan Open. Over, he must have been, I don't know, he must have been. I was about, jeez, I must probably only about 20. So he, God knows, he must have been 30 years older. I mean, he probably must have been 50 then or something. Came out and played. Sweet sing, sweet swinging, Sam. Sam, that was it. I still try and teach my young players now to swing like Sam. It's the only way to go. Get it deep. You think he's had, does he have the best swing you've ever seen, you think? One of the best rhythms I've ever seen. Ah, yeah. Well, if you look at the motion, you're in the inside, and it just comes through it. It's you know, swings change with different kinds of the equipment, so it is a little different, a bit more. You see the injuries coming these days. I love what one writer said about watching Sam Snead practice at golf was like watching a fish practicing to swim. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh uh, well, yeah. Yeah, that's what I used to do. I used to sort of swing, try to copy him. I swat Watson, you know, when I was younger, get them sort of swings in my mind. And uh, if you get a picture of them in your mind, it makes you it makes you play better. A little two turns and a swish, and that's all it is. A swish and two turns, whatever you want to say. Yeah, we've covered baked beans and baby <laughs> apes and Sam Sneed's rhythmic golf swing. This has been fun. All right, guys. I better go and try it out now. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Cheers. 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 Bye-bye. Bye-bye.